You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church Podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's Word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. So, we're talking about prayer, and as I consider prayer, we were discussing this somewhat in our men's discussion this past Wednesday. Um, when we pray, <clears throat> at least one of two things happen. And I, I think it's true in, in one way or another that one of these two things happen. Sometimes both uh, happen. <clears throat> when we pray, God changes things. God actually responds to the prayers of his people. Now, sometimes I think we can get uh, weary sometimes in praying for something that uh, we don't see God um, moving in the way that we think or that we would like or what we were asking, <clears throat> that it's easy to perhaps grow doubtful that he's actually working, that he's actually changing. But he's working and changing even when we don't see it, as well as he has the power to change and do the very things that we ask when it's according to his will. So when we pray, God changes things. But also when we pray, God changes us. When we pray, God works in us to align our hearts with him, to, to bring our will and submission to his will, to, to help us to see that life isn't about our kingdom, but his kingdom. And so when we, when we pray, it's not just that God does something out there, but it's that God does something in here as well. Um, and as we talk today about the second and third petition, we're going to see that in uh, in both of these senses, we're asking God to do these two things. We're asking God to, to work and to move in such a way that he changes things to bring about on earth that which is true in heaven. But also, we're asking God, and perhaps even the, the first thing we're asking God as we pray these things, is we're saying to God, start with me. Start in me. Move in me and change me. When we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. So our, our scripture uh, is obviously uh, short today. Um, you perhaps have either already got this memorized in the Lord's Prayer or uh, you will have it memorized before this uh, sermon is done as I will perhaps say it enough uh, to get it uh, in your mind and in your heart. Uh, but the second and third petition uh, are closely intertwined together, uh, but uh, but yet distinct and important to understand their difference. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These three petitions make up the first part of the Lord's Prayer. And, and as we talked about last week, when we begin in prayer, we, we begin with God. We begin with adoration. And having rightly understood who God is, both in His mercy and His grace, that we can come to Him as Father, as well as in his holiness and his righteousness that he's in heaven and that his name is to be made holy, not just with our lips, but, but with our lives. Uh, we, we can't help but uh, move from adoration to a sense of submission and asking for God's kingdom to come and his will be done. We're saying, God, I submit myself to you. God, I, I long and desire for you to accomplish your will in my life. I long for your kingdom to be real in this world and in my life. It's a, it's a prayer, it's a petition that, that ultimately uh, is expressed as submission to God. Um, and, and so we begin with your, your kingdom come. And uh, we're going to look at what, it, what we mean by talking about God's kingdom and then later God's will. 
Now, God's kingdom, similar to God's will, is spoken of in the Bible in at least two different senses. Um, the first is that God's kingdom fundamentally refers to his reign, right? It's, it's God's rule and reign. And the Bible refers to, to God's kingdom as his sovereign reign over all things. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth and the heavens and all that is in them belongs to the Lord. He, he is sovereignly in control of all things. And he has been for all of time. Since the beginning when he said, Let there be and there was, um, and, and this created world, God has sovereignly been at work and ruling over all things, and for eternity past, uh, he has always been. And so when we refer to God's kingdom, there's this broad sense of his sovereign reign, but there's a subset of that uh, that is his redemptive reign, and that his redemptive reign is true uh, for those who believe in and submit themselves to Jesus. And God's sovereign rule and reign is going to come uh, once more on this earth, but it's going to come about uh, ultimately as God works out his redemptive plan and purpose in drawing men and women, boys and girls, to faith in Jesus. So God's sovereign reign has always been over all things, and his redemptive reign has come about in Jesus. So when Jesus came in Matthew uh, chapter, chapter 1, 15, 14, and 15, it says, Jesus showed up and he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So the kingdom came in Jesus uh, and entered in this world in this redemptive sense. And J.I. Packer, speaking of this redemptive sense of God's reign, says that God's kingdom is not a place, but rather a relationship. It exists wherever people enthrone Jesus as Lord of their lives. We just sing that song with our lips, uh, that he is on the throne, that he is worthy. Uh, it's in this place that the kingdom of God is present as he sits on the throne of our hearts. His redemptive reign has come in the lives of those who have a relationship with Jesus. And, and, and so when we talk about the redemptive reign of God, this kingdom of God, it's already because Jesus has come and brought the kingdom of God, and yet it's also not yet. Uh, it's this, there's this sense in which we're waiting for God to fully bring about his kingdom, right? We know that in God's kingdom, there's not daylight savings time and it doesn't snow on spring forward Sunday, right? Like in God's kingdom, he orders things better uh, in, in the fullness of his kingdom. Here we are stuck in our fallen world as we experience these things. Um, I hope you enjoyed losing an hour of sleep, uh, but next week sometime we'll all be thankful that it's not dark right, at, uh, at 5 p.m. Um, <clears throat> there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is still to come. And this is what Revelation eleven fifteen 15 says when it says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So there's a sense in which Jesus says the kingdom is now, it's at hand in his coming, and he has brought it about through his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, but we await the fullness of that kingdom when God's rule and reign is over all things. And in that day, his rule and reign will be received gladly by all people um, because he will, uh, he will be in his rightful place, ruling and reigning over all things, uh, including in the hearts of all those who enter into eternity with him. 
an eternity marked not by a celestial, bodiless experience, but a new heavens and a new earth, a renewed and resurrected body in which we'll live in the fullness of what God intends for us without the presence of sin in the presence of our Savior and in the presence of our God. That's, that's what's to come. That's the, the not yet part. And so when, when we pray, your kingdom come, we're, we're both desiring and expecting the, the future kingdom of God to come. And yet there is also a sense in which we're asking God to, to bring more people in under the redemptive reign of Christ. We're asking for more people to come and know him. And in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, when you look at Matthew 6, Matthew 6, as Jesus presents the Sermon on the Mount, the conclusion of the sermon shows us that Jesus' intent is for people to hear this message and to ask themselves, which one am I? Am I standing on seeking sand or am I on the solid rock? Do I have ears to hear the words of Jesus? And do I have a heart that submits to him? Because if I submit to him, hearing his words and believe in him, then it is the way to eternal life. But if I hear his words and dismiss them, it's the way to destruction. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is intended to draw people in to the kingdom. It's to show us what it means uh, to experience life in the kingdom as well as an invitation to enter the kingdom through faith in Jesus. And so when we pray God's kingdom come, one author, D.A. Carson, said to pray your kingdom come is to pray that God's saving reign will be expanded even now and much more that God will usher in the consummated kingdom. So I think it means at least three things for us that we should, we should think about when we pray your kingdom come. It means we're longing for Jesus' return. And, and I think this is, <clears throat> this is one of those things that a lot of times in our, in our daily life, we, we have this sense of, yes, it'll be good when Jesus comes back. Like when you're having a bad day, you're like, Lord, come back. Um, but there's also a part of us sometimes um, that goes, you know, I want you to come back, but first I'd like to, you know, I'd like to get married, or first I'd like to be able to complete this job or have this experience, or let me travel a little bit, you know, like let me have, you know, some of these experiences before you come back. There's this sense in which we're like, yeah, I want you to come back, but I'd like to, you know, experience a little bit more here and now. Now, <clears throat> I think God's made us to um, uh, live life fully and enjoy the goodness of his gifts to us in this world. But all throughout the scriptures, time and time again, especially as you look at Jesus' teaching, he would remind us often, don't, don't get confused with placing all of your hope and your purpose and your life in the here and now. Because this is just a small slice of what I have planned for all eternity. And sometimes when we step out of our daily reality and we look at how much is broken in this world, we realize that, yes, in God's redemptive reign, he comes and he heals and, and he works in the, in the midst of that brokenness, in the midst of the sin, in the midst of the mess that it causes and renews and redeems. And yet we await so much to be made right, so much that's wrong, that won't be made right until he returns. We, we ought to be people who long for Jesus's return, that we don't just live for the here and now. But that when we pray your kingdom come, we're, we're saying to God, God, what you have planned is far better than what I have planned for my life. Like what you desire to bring about in the world and, and in relation to my life 
It's far better than whatever I've, I've worked up. And that, that, takes, that takes us to a place of submission. Because sometimes we're like, yeah, I know that, but I got a pretty good plan that I want to get worked out here, God. So get on board, please. But to pray your kingdom come is to say, Lord, we long for your return. D.A. Carson continuing on this, he said, Christians have prayed this prayer that throughout centuries under uh, the suffering and persecution, longing for Jesus to come and make right what's wrong and to bring about his kingdom. And yet we can, we can say it so lightly and so thoughtlessly sometimes. He says, <clears throat> we, we would have no objection to the Lord's return, provided that he holds off a bit and we finish a degree first or let us taste marriage or have time to succeed in business or profession or grant us the joy of seeing grandchildren. He says, do we really hunger for the kingdom to come in all its surpassing righteousness? To see God in the fullness of who he is, to see his purposes fulfilled in this world and in this life? Or do we waddle through a swamp of insincerity and unrighteousness? Are we willing to just kind of go along with the flow, not setting our eyes on eternity and setting our eyes on Jesus's return? Peter described the return of Jesus as our blessed hope. And yet so often we find hope in so many other things. But the hope that, that, that is to anchor our souls is that Jesus is coming and he's going to renew and make all things right. And that's good news. So <clears throat> when we pray, uh, your kingdom come, we're praying, we long for Jesus' return. We're also praying that we submit to God's reign in our life. You see, to, to pray <clears throat> God's kingdom come is to necessarily say, and not my kingdom, right? Uh, it's to say, Lord, I want you to build your kingdom and not my kingdom. I want you to work and accomplish your plan and your purpose not my plan and my purpose. It's, it's to submit ourselves fully uh, to him and to his reign in our lives. One, one author said, to say thy kingdom come is a searching and demanding statement because it says, start with me. Make me the fully obedient subject. Show me my place among the workers of the kingdom of God and use me so far as may be to extend the kingdom and be your means of answering prayer. He said to make this prayer is a call for self-denial and cross-bearing and consent that one's life be lost one way or another in serving the gospel, that God's way may be done completely. When we pray thy kingdom come, do we pray thy kingdom come and really mean start with me? Really mean, God, work in me, submit my life to you. I think there's, there's at least four different ways this can get fleshed out when we say we want to submit to God's reign in our life. <clears throat> the first is, is repentance. Just like Jesus said when he showed up, the kingdom is at hand, therefore repent and believe the gospel. To say uh, we submit to God's reign in our life is to say, God, wherever sin is present, we turn back from it. Convict us of our sin and we'll turn from it. Jesus teaches us that repentance is the means of entering the kingdom of God, and it's the principle by which we, we make it. Uh, that we, we walk in the kingdom of God. It's the, the principle of our lives as followers of Christ that we, we have repented and turned from our sin and trusted in Christ. And as we follow him, wherever sin is present, we turn from our sin and we follow Christ. It's an ongoing reality of our life 
that <clears throat> we, we repent of sin and we follow Christ. So there's repentance when we submit to God's reign. There's also commitment. Jesus would say in Luke 9 that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. That to, to submit ourselves to, to God's reign in our life is to give ourselves fully to him. There's no part-time follower of Jesus. And when we sometimes are clocking in part-time, we go back to the point one, repentance of, Lord, forgive me for trying to follow you part-time. When you call me to an all-in commitment to following you. Elsewhere in, in the Sermon on the Mount, the third uh, aspect of submitting ourselves to God's reign is priority. Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. We get so tripped up being worried about all the stuff of our lives, the details of our life, how this is going to work out, what our plan is here, how's this going to be provided, when is this going to happen, that we can work ourselves in anxious toil, not seeking the kingdom of God. The priority of our life is to seek the kingdom of God. One author said, we can't pray the Lord's Prayer with folded hands. To pray your kingdom come is to pursue it. It's to, it's to pursue God's kingdom. It's to say, I want my life to be prioritizing the, 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 the matters of your kingdom. I, I want my life to reflect righteousness and holiness. I want my life to reflect love of God. I want my life to reflect love of others. If you're, if you're like Michael, that's, I need something more concrete. What's it mean for my life to be about the kingdom of God? Just go read Matthew 5 through 7 again. Let your, life, let your life be marked by, by, not, by knowing that you don't have it all together. Let your life be marked by knowing that, that you're dependent on God. Let your life be marked by purity. Let your life be marked by being a peacemaker. Let your life be marked by being merciful, by enduring persecution with, with, with trust in God. Let your life be, be distinct as salt and light. Let, let your life be submitted and obedient to God's word. If you want to prioritize the kingdom of God, take your anger seriously. Take your lust seriously. If you want to prioritize the kingdom of God, take telling the truth seriously. If you want to take the kingdom of God seriously, take your marriage seriously. Love your wife. Love your husband. If you want to take the kingdom of God seriously, be willing to go further than what other people expect or demand of you. Be willing to serve others in ways that don't make sense. If you want to prioritize the kingdom of God, then don't just love those who are easy to love. Don't just love those who love you back, but love your enemies. If you want to take the kingdom of God seriously, give generously. Pray faithfully. Fast expectantly. If you want to take the kingdom of God seriously, trust him. Even though your heart fills up with worry, when you don't know what's going to come or what's happening next, trust him in the midst of it. That's, that's what the Sermon on the Mount says. That's what the kingdom of God looks like when we prioritize the kingdom. And then lastly is dependence. <clears throat> In Matthew 5, 3, I mentioned it just a moment ago. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is this sense of, uh, of 
of dependence and need for God. You're aware of your need for God. You mourn of your sin. You're aware of your sin. You, you have no spiritual pride. There's no presumption when you come to God. You recognize your need for Him, and you come needy and dependent and confident that He is enough. So the kingdom of God belongs to those who know they're not sufficient. The kingdom of God is good news for those who fear being found out. The kingdom of God is good news for those who don't think they measure up. But here's the thing. You have to humble yourself. The door to get in is low. We have to, be, we have to admit, it's okay, I don't have it figured out. I'm not sufficient, but I come to the one who is. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying, Lord, we submit our lives to your reign. We want your reign to be true in our life. And that looks like repentance and commitment and priority and dependence on you. And then we're also pleading for others to submit to Jesus as king. Jesus taught us in his parable that the kingdom grows as the gospel is sowed. The kingdom grows as the gospel is sowed. God draws the hearts of men and women, boys and girls to himself, is actively working as the gospel is shared to bring people into relationship with himself. So how do people get saved? People get saved by hearing the gospel. And how will they hear the gospel? They'll only hear the gospel if someone shares with them. If someone shares with them the good news of what Christ has done for us. And, and to pray your kingdom come is a reminder that successful evangelism is faithfully sharing what God has done. Do you know you and I cannot save a person? Not one person. Yes, in our evangelism, we, we ought to seek to, to persuade in the sense to, to present the good news in a way that people have ears to hear. But at the, at the bare uh, foundation of what we're trying to do is we're trying to announce what Christ has done, counting on the fact that just like you and I came to know Christ, it's because God drew us to himself. If you know him, if your testimony is that I have a relationship with Jesus, then your testimony probably includes something like this. When I wasn't looking for God or when I didn't know I needed God, he was pursuing me. He put that person in my life when I didn't expect it. He, he led me to have that conversation with that person at just the right time. It's in hindsight often that we see God's hand at work. But, but nobody who comes to faith in Christ says, God really got lucky with me. He got a good one with me. Now, all of us say, Lord, what grace and what mercy that you sought me when I wasn't seeking you. I remember <clears throat> uh, when I first became a believer, we uh, sang the song, uh, He loved me ere I knew him. Um, as the, the hymn would go. He loved me ere I knew him. And <clears throat> I didn't understand what I was singing. I was like, love me ere I, what does that even mean? Like, what's ere knew me? He loved me before I knew him. He sought us first. He loved us first. That's, that's the, the hope that we have as we share the gospel is that God is more committed to drawing men and women to himself, our friends to himself, our coworkers to himself, than, than even we can be. But when he puts them on our hearts and we seek to share the gospel with them, 
it frees us from trying to be the hero and lets him be the hero as we just seek to faithfully, even insufficiently and sometimes inadequately, get the words out of our mouth to say, Jesus loved you and he died for your sin. Do you know that? Do you, do you know what Jesus does, did for you? See, I can't even say it. Do you know the hope that I have in Christ? Sometimes it comes about in the course of a conversation. Sometimes you have to muster up the strength with sweaty palms to say, hey, can I talk to you about something that's important to me? But when we do, God works to draw people to himself. This week, as you can tell in this sermon, Packer's book on the Lord's Prayer ministered to me. He said, under the reign of God's grace, this statement, all the damage done to us by sin is repaired. May not be fully yet, but it begins. And not only is the damage done, but I would add it's under the reign of God's grace that he begins to transform us into who he wants us to be. That's what we have. That's the, that's the good news that we share. Sometimes we feel like it's an intrusion and, and we're stepping on somebody's toes and perhaps we are. But if I know that this message is what allows what's been done to us by sin to be repaired and what allows us to experience what we are actually made for, then we're talking about a whole nother ball game. Those toes are worth stepping on. How can we not long for this, for this to not only be true in our lives, but also to be true in others? That's what we're praying. When we pray your kingdom come. We're saying, Lord, we plead for others to submit to Jesus as king. Let others hear your words, even through me, and to decide not to build their life on sinking sand, but to build it on the rock-solid foundation that is Jesus Christ. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will be done. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever had this situation. Maybe it's with a spouse or with a friend. It goes something like this. Where do you, what do you want for dinner? Um, or where do you want to meet? You know, maybe for coffee or, or usually, usually it's around food. You know, the coffee shop's easy enough to pick, uh, but the lunch spot is a little trickier. Where do you want to go for dinner? Where do you want to meet for lunch? And then usually one person responds, I don't care. You decide, right? I don't care. You decide. Translation, your will be done, right? That's, that's, they don't say it that way because that would be weird. Um, but maybe this week you say it that way, you know, where do you want to go? I don't know. Your will be done. Um, and just see how it goes. So they say, I don't care. You decide, you know, your will be done. So you say, whatever's on your mind. You're like, well, Hey, let's go to Frida Batita's, right? Like, why not? Well, I wasn't thinking that, right? I, I wasn't thinking that anything, uh, anything but that I'm cool with anything else. So, so basically it's like your will be done as long as it aligns with mine, right? Uh, and in my family, pretty much the only safe bet uh, is, is usually some type of Greek food or tacos is like our go-to, like when we can't agree on anything else, like some type of Greek food or tacos is where, where we're headed. Um, <clears throat> but there's always that moment where it's like, well, I thought you said you didn't care. And so I could decide, you know, but you definitely do care. So it's not whatever I want. It's whatever I want as long as it's what you want. Well, when we pray your will be done, I think sometimes we, we kind of have that dialogue with God, right? It's like, God, you do your will. Just please align it with mine, right? Like, let, let's sync up on this. Like, let's work together. If we work together, just imagine what we can do, God. When we pray your will be done, we're, we're not praying, 
God, you get on my page as much as we're praying, God, let me get on your page. See, God's will in the Bible, similar to his sovereignty, has at least two senses. People use different phrases for this, and I'm <clears throat> going to use these two. We have God's sovereign will. Um, <clears throat> it's dawning on me as I look over here. Our slides aren't in here. Uh, they were done, but it required an export that didn't happen. And so these will, we'll post these this week so you'll have them. So um, uh, hope uh, hope you're able to follow along, but sorry for, for not having it on the screen. Um, <clears throat> There's two senses in which we talk about the will of God. One is his sovereign will, that, that this is God's plan, his secret plan that we don't know, that he's working out in all things throughout history and throughout the universe. God, just like his kingdom, he rules and reigns over all things. God is accomplishing his, is accomplishing his will over all things at all times. Some have referred to this as, as God's um, <clears throat> will of decree that whatever he says will come to pass and nothing comes to pass without coming through his sovereign will. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? So God, God is accomplishing his good and perfect will in all things. And yet within God's will, he doesn't supersede our responsibility to obey him. And that's the second part of his will referred to in the Bible as God's moral will or God's will of desire that it refers to his revealed will to us. This isn't hidden, but this is revealed to us in the Bible and particularly in God's commands to us that we are to obey so God's sovereign will we trust, and God's moral will we obey. Every day, God's moral will is broken by us, by people around us, people in the world. People fail to live up to the will of God according to the Scriptures. Living in God's moral will then requires obedience. And when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we talk about uh, the kingdom of God being marked by righteousness and uh, obedience. We're seeing that Jesus is, is, is saying that we are to pray, God, would your, your will, obedience to you and to your commands be reflected on earth as it is in heaven? So this could refer in a sense to the ultimate sense of God's will being obeyed as it will be in the, in the future kingdom of God or in the, in the degree to which it is obeyed, that it would be obeyed willingly and gladly, just as it is in heaven here on earth. So when we pray God's will be done, there's two things that we're praying. We're praying, or there's two kind of postures that we're taking in our heart, if you will. We're accepting whatever God sends. So God, your will be done. Whatever comes my way, I'm trusting you. And then... We're seeking to obey what God commands, accepting what he sends, obeying what he commands. One Puritan author, Thomas Watson, said that to pray your will be done is to do diligently all that he commands and to submit patiently to all that he afflicts, to do diligently all that he commands and to submit patiently to all that he inflicts. Doesn't this just bring us to the end of ourselves? Isn't this really the struggle of the Christian life? To really 
submit ourselves to him, to really receive, that sometimes to trust him and the difficulty of what's taking place, to say that, that God's will, uh, his sovereign will that's being worked out, uh, means that we trust him with what comes our way. It doesn't mean that God, as I said earlier, supersedes our responsibility or is the author of sin. So we can trust him even as we sin or we are sinned against or experience the effects of a sinful and fallen world, that, that he is good and perfect and wise and sovereign and his plan is being worked out. And even when we, uh, as it's been said, even when we can't see his, his hand or trace his hand, we can trust his heart. We can trust that he's working to accomplish all things for his purpose in our life knowing that we are called by him and love him, he's working in our lives. What confidence and what comfort that brings to us. I think as I've gone through uh, some challenges in, in the last few years of my life in varying degrees, I realize how easy it is to say this, and then when the rubber meets the road, how hard it is to actually trust him what's, what's coming my way. When things really are out of your hands, when things really are out of your control, when, when you can't do anything to change what's happening, do you trust God? Do you say your will be done? I, I'm, I'm not here to castigate you for not doing so. More than anything, I'm here to remind you that even sometimes when it feels like you can't or you shouldn't, you really should because he's really worthy of our trust. He's really working in all things according to his purpose. His will is good. That's why we can submit to it. And his commands to us are for our good. We see, when Jesus tells us that we are to come to him, we, we know Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Do you know the rest that our Savior provides accompanies walking with his yoke upon us. Follow me, he says. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. To, to follow him is to obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. The one who obeys my commands is the one who loves me. And his commands aren't a killjoy. His commands aren't a burden. They're for our good. And so when we pray your will be done, we're saying, God, like, I really want to obey you. We're, we're asking God, help me obey you. When we, when we walk through temptation, we not only need to pray, Lord, strengthen me to fight your temptation, but God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me obey you as joyfully and willingly as the angels in heaven do. God, help me to, to long to keep your commands. Remind me, God, that your commandments are for my good and for my joy, that your burden is light, that to obey you isn't just a, a duty, but it is truly a delight because it's for my good and it draws me closer to you. That's the essence of praying your will be done, to do diligently all that he commands and to submit patiently all that he inflicts. But this raises another question because oftentimes when we pray for God's will, we're often talking about finding God's will. Have any of you tried to find God's will in your life? You thought about what is God's will uh, for 
who I should marry or where I should go to school or what job I should take or um, <clears throat> when I should have children, how many children I should have. Good luck trying to control that. Should I switch jobs? Should I take this role or ministry job? Should I foster care? Should I adopt a child? Should I go to this church or that church? What's God's will for these things? Well, if you look right here in Matthew, I'm just kidding. God's will is spelled out for these things, right? Um, there's not a clear answer for those. If, if there was, like we would be set. Everybody would want to come to church uh, to hear what the answers were to these questions. You see, these questions are often, there's a fear underneath them, as Christians especially answer them, that we don't want to miss out on what God has for us. And maybe even, even if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, there are many people who ask these very questions just wondering and, and fearing, kind of being paralyzed. Of, what if I make a wrong decision? What if I miss out? Not on God's best. What if I just miss out on what I hope is best? <clears throat> you see, when, we, when we're asking for God's will to be known about particular decisions like this, we, we really should be praying for God's wisdom to help us make these kind of decisions. Uh, a helpful book on this topic is by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something, a liberating approach uh, to finding uh, God's will. He talks about this being uh, God's will of direction, uh, what, this sense of wanting God's will of direction. And because God's sovereign will, his will of decree is hidden and we don't know it, we, we sometimes get the wrong perception that like God's got this one thing for us and if we don't choose all the right choices, then, then our life is, is going to end up in a terrible place. I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I'm on like ESPN or even on social media and there's like these new, um, uh, these new like commercials for these games. I don't know what they're called where you have to like do math on the spot. Have you seen these where they're like, it's like little army people and on one side you've got like times 100 or on the other side it's like minus 50 and you got to keep going through them and then you choose the next one and if you choose wrong then you're going to get beat by the computer game that's trying to compete against you is it, you know what i'm talking about has anybody seen these okay um if not uh just forget this illustration but i think sometimes we think of god's will like that that is just like you got to hit everything right and if you hit divide by five rather than multiply by 100 then you're going to get killed by the army that's coming all right lights out um, if you make the wrong decision, you're going to miss out. And we think God's will is, is a dot, and we've got to find the dot. And where's the dot? Yeah, I've got to get it. If not, I'm going to miss out. But <clears throat> God doesn't want us to busy ourselves with divining his will, the young tells us. He wants us instead to give ourselves to his moral will, to his will of desire, to walking in obedience to him. And when we walk in obedience to him and we seek his wisdom, then we can make the decisions that are before us. You see, the Bible is clear about what God's will is for us. There's, there's at least three places that God is super explicit about this. Second Peter 3.9, God's will is that we be saved. Lord isn't slow about his promise, as some count slowest, but is patient toward us, not wishing, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God's will is that we be saved. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says that God's will is that you be sanctified. This is the will of God, your sanctification, including but not limited to that you abstain from sexual immorality. So God desires us to be set apart and holy in our lives. And here's one that's really step on your toes. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, give thanks in all things, for this is God's will for you. 
So God's will is that we be saved, that we be sanctified, and that we be thankful. So if you were looking for God's will when you came in here today, there it is. That you be saved, that you be sanctified, that you grow in holiness, and that you give thanks. That you recognize him as the author of all good things, and you walk in dependence on him. That's a whole other sermon about why that's so essential. But the point is, God's will for our lives isn't a detailed blueprint that we need to find out and follow to a T. It's not a dot that we need to get on and stay on. Based on God's moral will, based on his will of desire, God's primary will for your life isn't that you do this or that, but it's that you become more and more like Christ. God's will for us is that we be transformed into his image that we walk in obedience to his word, that we trust him with what we can't control, that we obey him with what he's revealed. DeYoung gives four points to help us in our decision-making process. He says, read the Bible responsibly. That's where we found, that's where you discovered God's will this morning, that you be saved, sanctified, and thankful. That we seek counsel from godly believers. If you have to make a decision in the moment, then you can make that decision and you'll Find out one way or the other if you made the right decision. But when you can seek counsel, seek counsel from godly believers who can then also, three, pray for wisdom and direction with you. As you pray for wisdom and direction, you assess your heart, you assess your desires, you assess the dynamics of your life and your family, you assess the the desires that God has given you, his kingdom, you pray for wisdom and direction. And then the fourth thing, this is really important, you make a decision. And then the fifth thing that isn't on here is that you keep trusting God. And when it becomes apparent that, well, that decision didn't work out like I thought it would, you trust him with the next decision. And when it's clear that he blesses and you face another decision, you trust him with the next decision. And this is our life, that we walk in obedience to what he has revealed, trust him with what we can't control, and we seek his wisdom for the decisions that we have to make. So when we pray, your will be done, we're saying, God, we want, we want to desire to obey you. We want others to obey you. We want the plan that you have for my life and for all people to be worked out. And in the midst of that, God, the decisions I have to make help me to seek counsel, to seek wisdom, to trust you, and to make a decision. De Young concludes, he says, live for God, obey the scriptures, think of others before yourself, be holy, love Jesus, and as you do these things... Here's the liberating approach to God's freedom. Do whatever else you like with whomever you like, wherever you like, and you'll be walking in the will of God. What freedom that is to know God's will for us is revealed in his word, and then we can walk in wisdom with the things that we have to face every day. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to conclude by looking at Matthew 26. Because deep down at the bottom of praying this prayer, this, these petitions and submitting ourselves to God, is whether or not we can trust God. Whether or not he's worthy of us saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 45. Jesus is about to head to the cross, is about to be betrayed. And it says this. Then Jesus came with them, the disciples, a place 
to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking along with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He was deeply grieved. He knew what was to come. He was grieved to the point of death, it says. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, it says, he fell down and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup of God's judgment of sin. Yet not as I will but as you will. And then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he asked Peter, could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, a second time he went away and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and he found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. And after leaving them, he went away and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. Not my will, but your will be done. You see, we can submit ourselves to God's will because Jesus did. We can submit ourselves to God's will because Jesus did, and in doing so, he opened up the only way for us to enter the kingdom of God. It was through his death on the cross that he made a way for us to enter in. It was the will of God, Isaiah tells us, to crush the Son so that we wouldn't have to be crushed under the weight of God's judgment. It was God's will that the righteous one would die for the unrighteous. It was God's will that the, the sinless, perfect Son of God would die in the place of sinners. The gospel is the good news that Jesus in the garden said, not my will, but your will be done. And God's will for us is that we might be saved by Jesus standing in our place and for our sin. And when we wonder if we can trust God, if we wonder if we can submit ourselves to him and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, all we have to be reminded is that what Jesus prayed in the garden, he would finish on the cross. And when he walked out of the tomb on Easter Sunday, he gives us the confidence and the hope and the expectation that indeed his kingdom is coming, that indeed his will is being worked out. And with confidence, we can say, start in me, start now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.